Ready. Okay. You can introduce it. <laughs> introduce it. Nope. F you, Darren. <laughs> okay, welcome to episode 67 oh. of <laughs> Zoopod Cats Tats. Um, I am uh, Andres Rodriguez Morello, and a podcast with. Ah. Uh, Voltron. <laughs> How topical. Master Wilkes. of the universe. What? <laughs> that's going to annoy mm. people. Mixing your me- He-Man. Yeah, Christ. Okay, so uh, we're going to take a nice relaxed and uh, uh, tidy, honed, <laughs> tight. We run a tight ship here at Cat's. Zoopods, cats, tats, and we're going to start off. I don't know. If, I don't know if any of this works. If people only listen to the previous episodes, can you imagine listening to an episode? Like this is the first one. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, those guys are just awful. They're all over the place. So, uh, as is, custom- and hello to our many new listeners, taking us through, getting closer to that ten million listeners uh, ceiling. No, not ceiling. Ceiling. Thing. No. And feeling. <laughs> um, so. We start with what's known as FU, which stands for follow-up. And uh, what's the big follow-up issue that we have, John? Cheetahs. It's, it's dumbass Darren, because Darren has obviously seen the generic name for cheetahs a million times and never actually read it. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> so, you don't just say Akinogs, like you're some kind of Akinogs. It's uh, clearly Asinonics. It's got two ends in it as you correctly uh, stated. Uh, so I asked for some advice on how to pronounce the name. And, of course, I got on on Twitter and possibly on Facebook as well, I can't remember, but on social media, a lot of feedback, people saying that um, lots of discussion as to whether it should be a synonics, a synonics, a synonics, or a synonics. Listen, I don't care about any of that stuff. I wanted to know the the Ninx bit at the end. So it's it's as asinonics seems to yeah. be the preferred pronunciation. It's like baryonics or whatever, right? Yeah, asinonics, which is obvious. So anyone who says otherwise. But don't all the Greek purists say you know all the C's should be pronounced as K's, don't they? So that's always it's, a thing. Yeah, you, I had I had a load of people saying that, but then I had a load of others who say opposite, and then you have others who say it doesn't matter because we don't know what the original pronunciations were, and then you have others saying we're not speaking Greek, we're speaking a, you know, bastardized, anglicized version of those languages. So, exactly. and then isn't it like, is like uh, a Greek bastardization of Latin anyway, or something? I don't know. I don't know. Yes, Latinized Greek, I believe. So yeah, something like that. So as, asinonics is the pronunciation I should have used for cheaters. Um, uh, no other fu that I can recall. Uh, obviously, there are there is stuff. And let's stop, stop, Darren. Stop. Um, news in the world of Darren and John. Yeah. Okay. Look, I meant to ask you about this last time. I want to hear. I want to hear you. John, talk about your recent forays into uh, uh, what genre of art would you would you term it? Your hadrosaur themed uh, arts of recent times. 
Um, yeah, I gave a talk at uh, the Pop Paleo workshop. Actually, it was a public event afterwards about paleo art and where it fits in with the rest of what we call fine art, which is a sort of a terrible name because it suggests it's better than everything else, which in fact isn't really correct. But it's sort of, you know, mainstream painting that we all consider the mainstream canon of Western art in particular, you know, uh, Michelangelo, um, Monet, Picasso, that sort of line, right? Mm -hmm. And I was asking the question, where does paleo art fit in with this sort of stuff? Because it's always sort of been out there on its own. No one's connected it. No one's said anything about very much about how it connects to the, the broader art world. And I'm quite interested in this angle because I consider myself an artist first and a science communicator second. Some people might, you know, a lot of people approach... There's two very valid ways to approach this. Some people approach um, paleo art as uh, scientific illustration, basically. We want to know what this animal looked like, and I can show you this. Mm. Um, and I'm going to, you know, try to get it all right and give you the best interpretation that I can. And then there's what I consider my approach, which is I'm an artist, and I am going to plunder this stuff for artistic ideas for interesting pictures now part of what i think makes a really interesting picture is to try to be as scientifically accurate and informed as you possibly can be i think this is what gives the art depth and interest so in reality we end up with very similar a lot of us end up with very similar um approaches at the end but i do think that there's yeah fundamentally different ways to approach this and so I've always been really interested in what are we doing stylistically um, in paleo art. And um, it's become... What are you doing there? Nothing. It's beeping. Yeah, sorry, I was busy. Well, carry I can on, hear it, on. and it's on this track. Uh, well, I've stopped <laughs> it now. Yeah. <laughs> Bloody beeping. <laughs> Oh, John's talking about art. I'm going to play with my beepy thing. Camera. <laughs> okay. Um, so, where was I after you started beeping? Yeah, I've been interested in stylistically what we're doing in paleo art. So, oh, for God's sake. Really? Going to take photos <laughs> off your screen? What the f are you doing? Just shut up and keep talking. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> Look, just cover the camera. Look, there you go. Happy. <laughs> All right. Um. So, what are you going to do while one one arm up? <laughs> you have the attention span of a puppy. No, I have a good attention span. I don't. I am easily distracted by you making making beeping sounds and taking selfies with silly looks on your face. I okay. I apologise. <laughs> Continue. <laughs> right. Um, oh, I've forgotten where I was now. Right. Different styles. Um, paleo art, different styles. Yes, because I think a lot of paleo art has sort of converged on a particular style, which I call the same mother effing style. 
<laughs> to use a technical term. <laughs> to use a technical term. Which, don't get me wrong, isn't a bad style. It's just sort of everyone's doing it. And it's 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 approaching super real. It's almost photographic, but not really. And it's it's got a lot of detail in it. And if you look through the history of paleo art, this isn't actually the case. I mean, a lot of periods in history, people have been pretty... Uh, well, people's styles are very distinctive. I mean, you look at Doug Henderson versus Greg Paul or something like this. They're drastically different styles. And we've started recently to converge on sort of something that's a bit like a neo-cibic sort of look, I guess. Mm. Hyper-detailed. Hyper-detailed. and Pseudo-realism. And I want to... As I say, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. I just want to see a bit more experimentation and um, individual ideas coming through, you know, artistic personality. So <clears throat> I've been thinking about style a lot recently and thought, well, I should um, I should play with style a bit more. Let's see how far it can go. Who is it? There is a famous quote that says no one needs a cubist dinosaur. Hmm. Someone said that and I should... Wasn't expecting this question, so I didn't look it up. And, well, who says? Who says we don't need a cubist dinosaur? That yeah, kind of idea is just sort of, well, yeah, so what? Okay, maybe it's not like a um, a good piece of scientific illustration. It might not be very informative about what the animals look like. But it as was I say... W.J.T. Mitchell in 1998 in a book review. Yep. Okay, there you go. Now, that's true, as I say, if you're going for, like, scientific illustration, your your main aim is to inform. But what if that's not your aim? What if your aim is to create art that's inspired by these sorts of things? And in that case, well, yeah, we might want a cubist dinosaur. And I defend this as in the history of art in that we've discovered an awful lot of stuff about the world in the last 150 years like a lot the universe is completely different to what we thought it was what it was when michelangelo was painting even when the um a lot of the impressionists were painting right mm -hmm. we live in a world that is vastly different and we've got all this huge amount of subject matter that we know about now dinosaurs being one of the really spectacular examples of really fascinating and deep subject matter and we should tackle that um, but at the same time, we want to be aesthetically interesting if we're artists, so why not just jam all these things together, which is what I was doing. So that's where they come from. My crazy hadrosaur paintings are uh, jamming up of some pretty out-there artistic styles with dinosaurs. And I guess what I'm sort of saying with them is these are art. They're not scientific illustration. They're not really meant to super inform you about what dinosaurs look like. They're meant to be art that's inspired by dinosaurs. Now, a lot of people saying they're impressionism, which I can understand why. Lots of people say everything that's a bit messy is, in, like, messy but has a subject is um, impressionism, which... Uh, even some, you know, art historians sort of err on that sort of side, being very broad with what they call impressionism, whereas I, I tend to uh, think that impressionism is a pretty narrow field, which is 
it really should be painted from life and it's specifically about the color theory they had of complement brushing in complementary colors colors and things like this there's a very sort of narrow group of people that did this exact thing and actually what i was looking at when i was um painting these things was abstract expressionism which is much later and much crazier but once you take the abstract out of ab ab abstract expressionism it starts to look a lot like impressionism which i discovered <laughs> doing these things so there you go well yeah so was the it, it looked like the aim of those pieces was to become increasingly abstract as the i th it was it two or three paintings the first one that started out the Alloro titan was possibly the first one which is just a, a head in profile mm -hmm. not just the head in profile because obviously it was done in a in a peculiar i don't i wouldn't like to describe the style well uh, fragmented and made of numerous little yes yeah, lines yeah, but then you ended up with the Shantungosaurus, <laughs> where, I, where I can't be the only one that was squinting at the screen <laughs> trying to find a dinosaur. So is that a dinosaur's nose, and is that a dinosaur <laughs> in the background? I'm not really sure. Um, yeah, that's I, I yeah, that's the idea. Yeah, <laughs> I I I quite agree with you. I, I I do feel there's a place for it, and that if we're going to do the the art the art in paleo art. It's not just scientific illustration. Um, we're not the first to, well, yeah, it, it, it's relevant to us, but, you know, that's not the first time people have said things similar to what you've said. And um, Memo, Memo Kozman, our friend and colleague, has said the same stuff as part of the All Yesterdays movement that it's like, you know, why shouldn't we have sort of giant dinosaur bronzes that are, uh, you know, more art than science? And and also the, the stuff, you know, we look at a lot of stuff today that we yeah, those of us interested in dinosaurs and science tend not to like because you say, "Oh, it's just it's just awful because they, um, you know, they got everything wrong scientifically." You look at your your, your old retro dinosaurs of the first half of the 1900s, <clears throat> but the art, the actual art, the technique, and all the little you know aspects of style they were using was like generally better than anything anyone's doing today. So then you're in a quandary because it's like. This is amazing artwork, but it's bad uh, according to our current understanding. You know, it's bad science, scientific artwork. Yeah. So you're like, so, but it, but it, that doesn't stop it from being paleo art, right? It doesn't stop it from being like a uh, an, an an illustration of a hypothesis or a um a depiction of the past, an imagined depiction of the past. So we shouldn't necessarily. So so what what I'm trying to say in this connects to what you're saying is that paleo art is not synonymous with scientific accuracy yeah or scientific illustration mm. so yeah i think that um if we look at it through the lens of art then it becomes freer but as i say i do actually think that the scientific accuracy and this sort of thing is important because without that it's just kind of like well, you know, I don't know. There might be an interesting angle there of inaccurate, <laughs> accurate dinosaurs, but what's the point? You may as well just paint made-up animals, right? If that's, <laughs> if that's your thing, which totally is, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> you could say a lot of paleo art is consistent to that. So, yeah. I don't know. It's it's like there's fuzzy boundaries here, as usual. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. So there you go. So that's a bit of a little bit of news from the world of John. Where where can people find your artwork? Johnconway.co. 
And can you actually, it's all digital art, right? So what if people want to buy like a giant thing to hang on a wall? They can't. Okay, there you go. That's the end of that then. No, if you want to buy my prints, you have to support me on Patreon. That's the deal these days. Do you know how I I am realising at this point in my life that I have over the years bought a huge amount of art that should be up on the walls and I just don't have space. For example, I discovered the other day I've got this, which is like a, a Steve White... Uh, it's a print. It's not an original. Yeah. But like you know, that's that should be like in a frame. Yep. And, and I've still got. Yep. Oh my Bob Nichols. <laughs> yeah, it's just behind me right now. Oh yeah. Well, I'm, I am taking that back. This is by <laughs> an artist called Peter Snowball, who did a whole bunch of stuff, a load of postcards for the Natural History Museum. Uh huh. And today on the Show and Tell podcast, <laughs> yeah. well, this is great. Podcast. <laughs> Sorry. Oh yeah. <laughs> Stupid idiot. Okay. So. um... Uh, I whinge quite constantly about the state of affairs at Scientific American, where Tetrapod Zoology is currently hosted, and it's just <laughs> it's just beyond a joke now. Uh, so those of you who know me, who are part of the Tetrapod Zoology Facebook group and follow me on Twitter and stuff, I'm sorry for repeating this, but it's now really bad. They're now they're they are now. Uh, I feel bad for the actual people involved because it's not their fault. It's the fault of like lawyers that are behind the larger company that Scientific American is part of. But um, they like they're like, they are removing some of my blog articles. They are now demanding that I get specific permission. For uh, it's, it's I can kind of understand it, but I also find it completely anathema to blogging and to this, my style of blogging. It's just like. Okay, the way I work is now unworkable, basically. I, I have to leave, so I will be leaving as soon as I can. There is this problem of getting funding. I, I, um, as a freelancer, I do partially, as much as I hate to admit it, I do partially rely on the money I get from blogging, so I'm very reluctant to give up any earnings from it. That's the problem. Um, yes, just yesterday, so it being 25 years, of Jurassic, 25 years after Jurassic Park, I've been writing a lot about Jurassic Park. I've published one article so far. I haven't had time to publish the follow-ups. But um, I knew straight away, like, it's a waste of my time to get screen grabs or, you know, images from the film. That's just not going to work. So I've mocked up... <clears throat> I've, I've been mocking up my own little scenes with <laughs> Jurassic Park toys. <laughs> I haven't finished doing that yet. But um, in the first article, as part of the backstory to my personal... Um, uh, you know, um, interaction with Jurassic Park. Uh, Jurassic Park came out in the summer of 1993. In January 1993, National Geographic published a, a dinosaur special that was a tie-in to Jurassic Park. And it's one of the... I, I love that issue. One of the best issues of, of National Geographic magazine ever. And Louis Sahoyas, the um, the photographer... Uh, like you know, went was sent around the world to photograph you know dinosaur museums and dig sites and people and all that kind of stuff. He produced a follow-up book called Hunting Dinosaurs, uh, which is uh, just a fantastic book. Really love it. One of my favourite books on dinosaurs. And anyway, I wanted to include a cover of that uh, National Geographic issue, and I did. You know, just nicked it from Amazon or something. And get this: Scientific American said we're not allowed to publish a cover of the magazine issue <laughs> so they removed it they removed it like you can't be serious seriously i thought that okay so all the stuff about fair use that um it's made very clear that doesn't apply so what i've done this morning yeah so there's just like they've got the most ridiculously strict interpretation of copyright law which is wrong by the way they're just playing it utterly completely safe which is just ugh, you're not going to be able to have bloggers 
Anyway, but, sorry, go which, ahead. Yes, well, so far as they're concerned, that's not a problem because they don't really have, with all due respect to those, to my fellow air quotes bloggers at Scientific American, none of them are bloggers. They're all science writers who just write about, you know, stuff in, you know, newsy, sciencey things. I feel like, and I, I, I feel, you know, mean saying this, but I feel like I'm the only person that's actually, actually blogging. Like, you know, what is blogging? It's like writing about, you know, personal opinion stuff and and on what what what's interesting you not just on what you've just seen on the newswires i feel like i'm the only person doing that the only person who's interested in comments uh, no one else wants comments on their sites anyway um so i'm i produce my own national geographic cover and uh, if you go to the scientific <laughs> american right now <laughs> you can see it <laughs> I, I think i did a first class sterling bang up job of uh I want to see your reaction. You're going to go. Oh, I've seen it already. I saw it on You've Twitter. You've seen it, it already. Great, yeah. You think it's good, right? Yeah, My yeah. art thing's. Yeah, I think it's better than the original cover. Better than the original. So I'm just waiting for that call from Nat Geo. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so I need I need to leave basically ASAP and set up elsewhere. So we are, we will be soon soon be going to the. Is it the fourth iteration of Tetrapodology? I can't. I don't do numbers. Tetsu version four, I think it will be. Yeah, so we'll, be that, that'll happen soon. Um, uh, Jurassic World and Lego. Uh, again, it's on social media. There's a thing where, uh, as part of my promotion for Dinosaurs in the Wild, currently on show at the Greenwich Peninsula in London, definitely until the end of July and possibly beyond. Um, do go and check Dinosaurs in the Wild if you're in the London area. Um, as part of my promotion for that, um, I uh, did a thing with the Metro newspaper in London where uh, Lego sent a load of Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom Lego to the Metro. And then Metro had myself, um, Alessandro Chirenza, who's a, a paleontology student, and uh, an actor called Ross, and I've forgotten his surname now, which is a bit of an embarrassment, apologies to him, uh, Ross Samuel, or Ross Cooper, seems to go by two surnames. That's, that's Such is the life of an actor, I guess. And um, they had us in the studio, like, you know, making Lego, and uh, that was quite fun. You know, half an hour of filming, and they, you know, proving it down to like 20 seconds but at least i say a couple of interesting things about dinosaurs funnily enough didn't talk about jurassic world fallen kingdom at all <laughs> we'll come back to that later in the show i think um but i did get to talk about like actual dinosaur science stuff and we also spoke about, spoke about dinosaurs in the wild a bit so that was good fun and i'm not bad at making lego i mean if i can follow the instructions <clears throat> mm -hmm. but talking and making lego talking about dinosaurs and making lego a bit of a struggle but i just about managed it <laughs> Um, I've written down trees and magpies, and just very briefly, um, this is on my mind, and again, it's something I've been discussing a lot with other people on social media. I feel very strongly about the removal of urban trees, and it's just been on my mind because one of my favourite trees in the ro road that I use every day was removed over the weekend, and it really bugs me. It just feels like you're powerless to... It's, okay, there isn't a single patch of greenery on the planet that some person isn't planning to remove for reasons of convenience or profit. There isn't a single patch of greenery you can think of. There's every single tree, every single forest. At some point, someone wants to remove it for something. And, okay, that's a slight bit of hyperbole, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying. So um, <clears throat> if there's an urban tree near you that you like, if you live in a town or a city, um, I think... I think we need to act. We basically need to make people aware of the fact that that tree is important. We want it there. So inspired by this, I did immediately go and yesterday go and uh, 
um, here in the UK, you do a thing where you apply for a PO, a preservation order on a tree. It doesn't work on weedy trees that grow in like five years. It doesn't work on big shrubs. But if it's a thing like an oak tree or a cypress or some grand thing that's been growing for like more than 100 years or even 50 years, uh, councils would generally consider putting a preservation order on it. And we there's a big op- oak tree opposite us, and I'd be heartbroken if that was removed. It would affect the whole feel of like the area around where I live. So... And I won't talk about magpies because I'll, I'll, talk, I'll talk too long. So, <clears throat> I, Yeah, I have a relevant story with this as well. Um, uh, you know, as our, our, our street has street trees, and I noticed the council removing one of them, right? Mm-hmm. And I phoned them, and they said, well, you know, the trees get into the... Under the under the houses, and if someone complains, we just remove them. And I said, okay, so in the lifetime of a house, like sorry, in the lifetime of a tree, how many people you have living in that house? Dozens, dozens and dozens, mm. probably. Mm. Changeover in London in houses is pretty high. And so, all your what you're saying is, it only takes one person to complain about that tree, and you'll remove it. And he said, uh, yeah, I guess you're right. And then, about four weeks after that, they came along our street and planted all trees, all new trees where all the ones were missing, right? So they planted about eight trees, I think. Okay, that's good. So I'd say, you know, it's quite interesting how responsive... We get used to government sort of services being completely unresponsive. But, I don't know, I think local councils, if you ring them and say things... They're often a lot more responsive than you think. And as you say, the um, preservation order on trees and things like this, you know, these sorts of things are actually within your power. (laughs) When When I have heard of cases similar to what you've just said, when I've heard of uh, cases of people like querying it or questioning it or contesting the removal of a tree, uh, generally it has turned out well. And I think what happens, it's turned out well in terms of they they have then not removed the tree or not destroyed it. But um, most of the time it's just too late. And they have some uh, BS excuse like, oh, the tree was rotten, it had to come down when it clearly wasn't. Um, Yeah, okay. Yeah, but but complaining like I did, I mean, okay, we lost the tree, whichever one they took out, right? That was gone. But yeah, yeah. they did plant. They did plant eight where they had no no mm. plants to plant before. Yeah, I think remo- losing them in the first place is such a big deal when they are so but important. But as you say, it's too late. But things. if they're getting yeah. calls all the time, every time they remove a tree, someone's saying, "You're removing that tree. Why are you removing that tree?" They're going to yeah. start thinking a lot harder about removing trees. That is and what they hurts might me. Change policies like, well, if anyone ever complains about the tree, we remove it. Which is obviously ridiculous. Yeah, because most people, like, it seems people move in and they immediately, they're like, oh, I don't like that shade over the window. So they remove the tree for that reason. It's not, it's not that, oh, our foundations are being torn to pieces by the tree, which is, I don't think any of those things are really true anyway. Uh, this, this paranoia people have about buildings being damaged by trees. I know, I know it does happen and it can happen, but it's like, it's, it's not as big a thing as people make it out to be. Okay, tangent. <laughs> <laughs> I love that there are these people listening to the podcast saying, when are they going to start talking about whatever the hell they want us to talk about? Okay, news from the world of news. Insert jingle here. News from the world of news. Dun, dun, dun. 
Uh-huh. Hey, have we got to the... Uh, I haven't checked. I haven't checked. Well, I have to know this because, you know... John's checking the Patreon edge. Whether you get your farty noises. No farty noises. Farty... 95! So close, people. So close. So when we get to 100... You get to 100. Dollars. $100. So we just need that generous benefactor to take us over the $100 mark and uh, loads of new features. It's just going to whole new... If we're on episode 67... Jesus Christ, only 67 podcasts. Feels like an eternity. Um, <laughs> well, they are very long. <laughs> Do other people's, other people's podcasts are as long as ours? They Some, probably are. yes. Yeah. Okay. We're on the longer side. Anyway. News in the world of news. Yeah. Two papers I want to talk about here, which both have interesting connections. Rashid et al. Uh, Dana, Rashid, a list of authors, including Louis Chiappi and Jack Horner as last author. Nature Scientific Report, avian tale ontogeny, pilgrim style formation and interpretations of juvenile mesozoic specimens. So this is a paper that's about like, how do we... Now, what, what I think it's about, given that Jack Corner is last author, for those of you who don't know, imagine there's a multi-author project and you're first author. Well, then you think, ah, the first author is the person that led the project. It's their baby. And all of the other authors are like their minions. They're kind of little lab, lab hands. Uh, in most of science, it's actually the last author who has that accolade. So the fact that Jack Horner, or John R. Horner, to use his uh, science name, uh, the fact that John R. Horner is the last author shows us that this is part of that chicken dino chicken project which we've mentioned a few times here mm-hmm. and um what i think this project is about this paper is about although it doesn't specifically say it is it's like let's find out how the uh how you can build a multi-segmented long dinosaur style tail based on the starting anatomy of a short mostly fused modern bird tail so it's like how is the pygostar formed and what's the difference between the formation of the pygostar and the formation of a multi-segmented long dinosaur style tail and the paper's okay but it's a bit of a meh paper really because um with all due respect to the people who work so hard on this <laughs> um basically what it says is that so Modern birds have got this structure called a pygostyle, which consists of a chunk of, you know, fused vertebrae. The In modern birds, the pygostyle is formed of as many as five different vertebrae that fuse together to form the pygostyle. So if you think of, like, there's the free vertebrae, the vertebrae that aren't in the pygostyle, and off the top of my head, I can't remember how many of those you can have, but I'm going to say you can probably have, let me find a photograph of a bird tail. Okay, that's not convenient, doesn't include as m- enough vertebrae. <clears throat> six I, well that's that's the I, th- I think you know i think it's higher than that eight. i think it's like two four six seven seven eight so you're talking you're, you're talking about like the bird tail if there are as many as like six vertebrae forming the piger style and then you've got like another seven or so you're, you're talking about you know I don't know. 13, Some 13. number over ten. <laughs> Talking about like so this idea that birds have got this super abbreviate tail, which makes you think that it's like two or one vertebra, is like no, it's actually like, you know, twelve ish, thirteen ish. Which uh, and and the main but the main crux of their paper is like that the actual pygostyle doesn't form until relatively late in ontogeny and uh, post hatching. 
the pike style doesn't form until after the bird you know chicken is the, the classic example they refer to a lot in the paper not just it's not just based on chickens they're saying that the vertebrae there, there are still three segmented vertebrae forming the tail when when the bird is like you know a little baby you know running around after it's hatched and also the various processes that grow off the sides of the free vertebrae the ones that don't form the pygostyle they don't form until quite late uh, either so they're okay okay there you go i think that's fairly basic stuff one of those things that people, everyone kind of knew but this is a study that demonstrates it with lots of you know stained sections and lots of embryology and stuff like that but they also say that because these structures the pig, the, the fused pygostyle and the processes that grow off the sides of the vertebrae uh, because those structures don't evolve until late in ontogeny if you've got an animal uh, that's like a you know a hatchling or a baby and it's got an a segmented tail and it so it looks like a kind of air quotes primitive dinosaur style tail it could still be a air quotes relatively advanced uh, bird but not have the uh, adult condition and they point in particular to two uh, cretaceous fossils there's a, a lioning province a tiny little cretaceous thing called zongornis uh, which has been given various different interpretations in the past because it's got like a non uh, a segmented longish tail longish compared to like a bird with a fused a pie style and there's also that uh tail that was uh, the isolated tail that was discovered in um, Burmese uh, amber mm. uh, recently. You know, like, God, when was that? Was that last year or yeah. year before last? And both of those animals, on the basis of having like a segmented tail without a fused pygostyle, they've both been interpreted as not particularly close to birds. Silurosaurian theropods, but not close to birds. And in this study, they're saying, hold on a minute they could actually be on the bird line relatively close to crown birds you know birds proper but still but but they could have tricked us because of this juvenile morphology and they don't really go much further than that to be honest they just they just have that as a side thing in the in the, the paper they say that the several uh, features that have led to the isolated tail being interpreted as being from a you know non-bird silurosaur because there's like a ventral there's like a, a sort of hollow on the um, the undersides of the vertebrae have got like ventral furrows on them and the feather morphology on that tail appears to be quite primitive compared to that of um, you know bird line animals they're saying that Oh, those characters are a little bit iffy and they can be present in birds in cases and so just hold on a minute it could actually be um yeah these actually could be from birds and we've been duped by ontogeny and so mm. yeah I, I was i was i was thinking the paper was going to be more of a big deal on like hey wow we've grown a chicken with a with like a dinosaur tail which is sort of what they're you know kind of i think what they're driving at but they don't specifically say it in the paper so there you go i thought that was interesting and worthy of comment and also you know a follow-up on did we discuss the tail in amber before oh we did when it first came out yeah so there you go so it's a logical follow-up to that and just dinosaur tail in amber is it definitely from uh, myanmar or burma as it used to be known because i'm bothered that i've yeah myanmar it is okay so it's 20 2016 that little tail preserved in amber which links us to the next thing I'm going to talk about, and this will be super brief. And this is uh, uh, sticking with the amber theme. Uh, also in Scientific Reports, everyone's new favourite journal, 
by Jing Lida and colleagues, the earliest direct evidence of frogs in wet tropical forests from Cretaceous Burmese amber. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, a beautiful, tiny froggy in amber that's from about the is it from the Albion? It's about 100 million years old, so it's from mid Cretaceous ish times. And this frog is, I mean, I'm looking at the scale bars here, five mils. So the frog is 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 going to be like less than less than four centimeters snout vent length and it's in you know clear amber and the paper is just got these you know brilliant um uh micro ct scans of the um of of the frog it's uh, it's lacking like um the right hind limb and the posterior part of the vertebral column and stuff but otherwise you've got a complete skull complete forelimbs complete left hind limb and uh, stuff it just it just looks great so i was like i heard about this before the paper was published um i was like wow this is going to f- first of all it's significant because it's the first good mesozoic frog from the tropics it's not from like you know cool northern places where the frogs are more boring um <laughs> Does it tell us anything interesting about the evolution of frogs in, you know, uh, well, as it says in the paper, wet tropical ecosystems? Is it going to be some – we've got all these ideas about when the crown frog radiation happened. You know, you want to know these things about the evolution of the lineage leading to poison dart frogs and toads and tree frogs. And those are all the buphonoids. What about the ranoids? You know, is it going to be like somewhere on the lineage to, you know, the rana frogs or the all those, all those African pixie frogs and stuff? No, it's another one of the. So it's there's this there's this bunch of like, with all due respect to them, <laughs> <laughs> there's this super boring, super widespread early grade of neobatrachian froggies called uh, discoglossids, the the, the tongue the um, disc-tongued frogs, which includes like uh, fire-bellied toads and midwife toads and all their relatives are all part of that like assemblage. They probably aren't a clade, they're a grade. Uh, and they refer it to this kind of grade. They, they use the term alitoidia, which is based on alites, the midwife toads. So they're saying it's a, a frog from that kind of, you know, like... Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate to use it. I'm trying to. I, I've weaned myself out of terms like this, but it's from that basal grade of. Uh, uh, so I, I said Neobatrachians a minute. I've just realised that's not right. They're not Neobatrachians, but they are. Um, they're kind of like the most archaic grade of crown frogs. There's three grades of crown frogs. There's the the archaic ones like this, the midwives and fire-bellied toads, etc. Then there's the the middle ones like the spadefoot toads and possibly the pipoids like um, Suriname toads and um, Xenopus and those animals. Although they might actually be further down the tree, this is controversial. And then finally, there's the Neobatrachians, which is typical frogs and toads and all their relatives. So they're saying it's from that discoglossid type grade. Mm-hmm. They called it Electrorana. Electrorana is from the Latin elect, electrum, which means amber and rana frog. I thought it was going to be something awesome like the electricity powered frog, but uh, no, Electrorana. So, so there you go. That's quite interesting if you like that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's just a stupid, successful frog, though. So, stupid, know. successful, stupid frog. <laughs> uh, now, and. I've, met, I've written down 
we could also talk about alleged amber pterosaurs, but should we or should we not? Uh, yeah, let's talk about that. That's pretty funny. It's very on topic at the moment, So, given what we've just talked about. So, yeah. Yeah. So, shall I talk about this from my own idiosyncratic, personal, self-obsessed kind of style of, you know, point Abs- of view? Absolutely. So, about a year ago, July 2017, I published an article called Fossils We Want to Find, and inspired by a question from a friend who's doing research for a book, I wrote, uh, we've probably discussed it on the podcast, you know, a list of things that paleontologists really hope that one day we, we find. And among those things, I wrote a little pterosaur in amber. The idea that we might discover intact mesozoic animals preserved in amber once seemed like a pipe dream, but no more. We now have large numbers of Cretaceous lizards in amber, a partial tail from a small non-bird theropod, and assorted archaic birds, including the better part of a baby in Antonothene. And we can now add to that the frog from Myanmar that we've just discussed. And then I go on in this article to say, wouldn't it be, we need a pterosaur. We need a little pterosaur in amber because that would tell us so much about various aspects of soft tissue um, anatomy that we're still a little bit, you know, hazy on or we disagree over. Well, without mentioning the names of the individuals involved, myself and several other people in the pterosaur research community were contacted, you know, soon after this article was published uh, by a couple of people claiming that they have amber pterosaurs. And, uh, you, and they also said that they've put this stuff online. Now, I'm not going to discuss the whole story because it's tedious and too many tangents but basically these bunch of people they say they've collected they discovered by trading in Myanmar with local collectors they've like got a whole bunch of like birds and non-bird theropods and tadpoles and frogs and and pterosaurs multiple bits of pterosaurs in amber and um you know, myself and other pterosaur researchers who were contacted by these people were like, really? You know, wow, that's great. You know, show us the fossils. I'm really interested. And they showed us fossils and they were immediately, it's like, eh, that's, that might be amber. I think that's amber. But the thing inside it, the inclusions or whatever, aren't definitely what you say they are. And that's like your first response. Like, yeah, okay. No, I'm sorry. That's not convincing. And then these individuals are like, yes, they are. Yes, they are. You just aren't looking hard enough. So, okay, look again. It's like, no, I can see why you think that might be a head, but it's not. That's like, that's like a little, I don't know, a stick and a bubble that you've got in there. And they say, you're just an idiot. You don't know anything about, you don't know anything about what things look like in amber because you are obsessed with bones. You love bones so much. You don't know a live animal when you see one. <laughs> and, and they just got they got hilariously hilariously aggressive like way over the top way out of proportion to the extent where like, myself and everyone else that I'm involved in is like look i'm not touching this with the barge pole goodbye we're done here and then they started being yeah just so aggressive so um so for those of you not familiar with this there are some individuals who are claiming that they have uh, amber pterosaurs they do not okay maybe they will eventually maybe they will have one it's not impossible but the bits that they are showing as fossils of pterosaurs and amber and they seem to be telling everyone they've got quite a you know they, they put a lot of this stuff online uh, you can find it quite easily if you're creative with your favorite internet search engine um yeah it's like you can look at those things and it's like no that's just a blob that's just a blob of crap and that's the case for all the all the things they say they found inevitably someone will find a pterosaur in amber and in fact i do happen to know that um yeah that probably has happened but these guys no 
No. No, I mean, yeah, no reason to, to... I don't think our audience is going to be taken in. You can go have a look. I mean, just write pterosaurs and amber into Google or whatever. You'll hit these things, and I challenge you to find a freaking pterosaur in their pictures. It's just messy, and just there's just nothing that you can make out at all. And they're not very helpful either on their websites, right? Mm. They don't even tell you what you're meant to be looking at, like, visually. Mm. They say, well, there's a something here, and you look, it's just a big blob of crap. So, hmm. So, that, so it's not just that, you know, like, this happens This happens all the time. If you're involved in paleontology, people show you stuff and say, look, I found a dinosaur's face. And you say, <laughs> no, it's not. That's just a lump of rock. You have to understand that's not how things are preserved, blah, 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 blah. You know, that doesn't, this is this is actually a chump of, a, a, cl- a clump of mudstone or something. It just looks, you know, pareidolia. The average person will say, oh, okay, I made a mistake. I, I'm not an expert. Uh, fair enough. These guys haven't done that. They've said, no, you are wrong and I am right. And they've been insanely aggressive about it which is really weird so the yeah that's, that's okay uh, yeah weird you gotta yeah. think that money's involved to make them angry like that yes yeah so they they are they have joined the the crank the list of cranks which is which seems to grow monthly at the moment right on to okay that was all preamble that was all just set up for our main event which is what I don't know. What are we going to talk about? (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about so 25 years of Jurassic Park. I feel that would like that's I'm doing that. Okay, if you're interested in Jurassic Park, it's been 25 years since Jurassic Park came out. There's a series of articles that are are either out or going to appear at Tetrapod Zoology, presuming I can get them published. And Scientific American doesn't like remove them or something, has it? Or are we going to talk about this Onza thing? Let's talk about Onza and then we'll move on to Jurassic Park because Jurassic Park blends into popular tat a little bit. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this segs into what we were saying uh, the, in the previous episode about cheetahs because we, or I even, spoke a bit about Asinonix pardonensis, the giant cheetah. And I started thinking about cheetahs. And one of my favourite cheetah-themed stories is the tale of the... Onza. Now, this is a cryptozoological story. The uh, cryptozoology literature, and in particular, the starting point for most people, is this book. Uh, Sorry, I had the thing covered. Mystery Cats of the World. By Carl Pienschuker. And this book was published in 1989, and it's... uh, I'm not saying I agree with a lot of the stuff Carl says in here. I, I know Carl Schuker pretty well. But um, this book is really good in terms of like a, uh, you know, a, a sort of gathering together of general thoughts on all of the alleged mystery cats from around the world. And he's got this long section in there on the Onza. And the story is, the cryptozoological story on the Onza, is that if you go back to oldie literature – so like Spanish conquistadors talking about, you know, discovering uh, Mexico and Central and South America, you know, 1500s, 1600s. They say that the people there knew of three cats, the uh, one that they called the lion, 
one which is like a lion, which seems to be a puma, one which is like they called it a tiger, which seems to be the jaguar, and then another one which they call the onza. And so it's implied in the cryptozoological literature that there's this third mystery cat, the onza. It's supposedly, according to Carl Schuker's book and other cryptozoological sources, it's supposed to be very long-limbed, gracile, speedy, plain in colour, maybe with a bit of striping on it. And you've got these various old references to this other kind of cat. Now, I actually think that cryptozoologists have made a mistake here, and I think that Onza wasn't another kind of cat. I think that it was a generic term for cats of various kinds, Mm -hmm. which is why in some older literature you can find Onza being used for the jaguar and also the word Onza being used for uh, mid-sized cats like Jagirundi. Um, I, I I don't think there's... From what I've seen in the literature, there isn't an unambiguous reference to a distinct entity called the Onza. But the cryptozoology literature works on the worked for a time on the idea that there was, and a guy called Robert Marshall uh, published a 1961 book called The Onza: The Search for the Mysterious Cat of the Americas, and he's and he's saying this is a thing. There is this mystery cat, this gracile, long-limbed, cursorial cat that isn't a puma and isn't a jaguar. So, so you then go into the cryptozoology world of the 70s and 80s the, the international society of cryptozoology is set up in the 80s uh, under richard greenwell and involving roy mackle and bernard hooverman and so on and they now have in their mind the idea that there is this kind of cat that we've this undiscovered mystery cat the onza and richard greenwell a well-known uh, mammalogist who uh, you know did a lot of cryptozoology stuff um, he uh, various researchers in the americas he got hold of uh, i think i think all from mexico he got three eventually three different skulls that were all said to be on the skulls and people are like wow do we actually have physical material for this animal the story culminated in 1986 when a, a cat was shot in i don't know how to pronounce it sinaloa in uh, northwestern mexico um a rancher supposedly shot this cat, 1st of January 1986. It's a famous story. There's, there's all kinds of questions as to its veracity and, you know, who was involved and who was contacted because, it, because there are competing versions of the story. But supposedly this cat was shot 1986 by a, a farmer or a rancher and it was said to be in good condition. It was um, uh, uh, like quite healthy uh, a good level of, of body fat basically lots of indications that despite looking something like a puma it was a legit real animal it was a puma like very gracile very long-limbed uh, animal and richard greenwell uh, got involved and uh, the the body was this is only like a few months this is like six months after richard greenwell has been talking about getting the skulls so that like, we got the skulls wow now we wait for, to get like you know the rest of the animal and mm-hmm. demonstrates for real and it's like wow within six months they've got one um the, the body was frozen at a uh, they must have made some unusual uh, but very convenient deal with like a local i don't know like a fishery mar- market you know some they, they they got it frozen, which was great, and got it properly analysed. And so you this is 1986, so Shuka's book is 1989. In the late 1980s, you've got this really exciting phase where people are saying, there is this new kind of cat. We've actually got a dead specimen. It does appear to be anatomically distinct from pumas. It is something new. Now, given that the Onza was supposed to be this long-legged, semi-cursorial 
puma-like cat. Mm. The 1980s was also the time at which people were paleontologists were saying that we think that a couple of Pleistocene, Pleistocene, long-legged cursorial gracile cats, you know, fossil cats, could actually be American cheetahs. Um, Achinonix. Love Christ. <laughs> Achinonics. Um, no, you've changed so, again. Yeah, whatever. You're going with the hard C. Asinonics. <laughs> like I say, so long as we know what we're talking about, it doesn't matter. Asinonics. Achinonics. You had that Stuart Lee sketch where he's talking about um, Cafe Nero. <laughs> <laughs> the Cafe <laughs> Nero. <laughs> tangent um yeah yeah so so actual actual like paleontologists were saying that these american gracile puma type cats could actually be american pumas <laughs> american cheetahs they're yeah. saying that these could be these fossil ones could be cheetahs because previously cheetahs were thought to be you know restricted to the old world cheetahs you know, prehistoric cheetahs, as, as we discussed last time, are not just African and Asian, but, you know, they're known from the fossil record of Europe as well, even Western Europe. Um, and uh, Helmut Hemmer, who's a well-known fossil cat worker, he actually proposed that not just were these um, American cheetah-like supposed puma cats actually American cheetahs, but he said, could these onza remains i don't know if he was talking about the 1986 complete uh, body but he was certainly talking about the skulls that richard greenwell had gotten hold of he's saying could they actually demonstrate that these american cheetahs had persisted basically to modern times and this is like wow this is not just like you with all due respect to cryptozoologists it's not just your fringe crazy saying this now it's like you know there's there's you know working biologists taking this very seriously um miracinonics Miracinonyx is the name for the uh, American animal we're talking about. And this is a, a slightly different tangent, but more recent research published since about 2015 has shown that uh, they've managed to retrieve some DNA from the bones of these American gracile cheetah-like puma-type cats. They are actually members of the puma lineage. They are not American cheetahs after all. And that's, you know, more recent with talking about like the 1980s. So in the 1980s, like, yeah, wow, could this be, you know, could this, this is a, this is a fantastic story. This is linking, it's linking anecdote and cryptozoology going all the way back hundreds of years with the discovery of actual modern flesh and blood remains in the modern day with paleontology demonstrating long term presence of these animals in North America. Um, So if you're like, you know, if you're on the ball in the late 1980s, you're like, oh, my God, you do realize there's a new species of living cat, which is just about to be described. Or or it's a, you know, a cat known from the fossil record is just about to be named for real, which is obviously a huge big deal. How did the story end? <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> so one of the things that I remember hearing uh, about this time I heard it first from Clinton Keeling, who was uh, – he's, he's no longer with us. He was a big, noisy character in the zoo world, and he ran a magazine called Mainly About Animals. And he was well-known as sort of someone who, like, you know, been involved in the husbandry of all kinds of animals over, like, you know, his many decades 
uh, of working in the zoo world. And he was a really, I got with him all right, but he was a really curmudgeonly, miserable, negative scale person. And if you, you know, I can remember there were cases in the 80s and 90s where like zoos in the UK were getting in pandas, right? We're going to get a panda in Edinburgh Zoo. It's a big deal. And he's like, panda? What do you mean, panda? This is stupid. Do they mean the Firefox? The the pogey the pogey on illumis fulgens from asia the small boring raccoon-like animal nobody cares now if on the other hand they mean the giant panda well then that's a different matter but they haven't said that so far and i say to them (laughs) that would be a typical conversation with clinton keeling Uh, rest his rest his soul he's a fine man but um he said (laughs) a fine pedant Uh, yeah, yeah. Like story I told you about, about the Zoologica convention. I oh, know that's another tangent. Um, uh, Clinton's take on this 1986 puma, sorry, 1986 onza, was that what they have there is merely a deformed, preg- recently pregnant female puma suffering from rickets, and that explains her unusual proportions. <laughs> And I was like, yeah, Clinton, you're just saying that because you don't like the idea that there could be a new species of modern big cat. But basically, mm, he might have been basically right. So there's a – now, the Journal of Cryptozoology, which was the uh, the Journal of the International Society of Cryptozoology, or the ISC. The ISC was going through loads of like um, weird um, uh, problems with finances during the the latter part of its life. I don't know why. I've heard various stories about people doing things with the funds. I don't know if that's, that, that's true or not. I don't want to say anything that's weird there. But um, the their journal, it meant that there were like sort of five-year delays of the, the journal appearing. So they wanted, apparently, they got this scoop on this 1986 Onda specimen where they actually did, a you know, the full scientific study and... I have heard stories that because Richard Greenwell, who was like the, the guy in charge of the IC, because he put so much effort and um, energy into procuring this specimen and getting the science done on it, the fact that it didn't go as he went left him with a lot of um, egg on face. But that might be unjust because it also sounds like they did just try to do proper science on the specimen and they were trying to be you know properly scientific about it whatever whatever the answer is right whether it does turn out to be something new or whether it doesn't they were trying to do it properly um but but their their big analysis of it was going to be a big scoop for the isc but i don't think they published it until 1996 so quite a a delay when they could have Mm -hmm. gotten a bigger splash with it earlier on so uh, I can't read the first name because the way the paper's formatted, there's a, like a, a, a digital glitch has appeared over the, fir- the name of the first author. I think the first author is Peter Dratch, but uh, it might not be Peter, I can't tell. Dratch et al. Uh, Stephen O'Brien was the last author. Stephen O'Brien, well-known uh, geneticist on uh, carnivorans, cats, dogs, giant pandas, bears, etc. And their paper molecular genetic identification of a mexican onda specimen as a puma puma concolor and they showed that this 1986 mexican onza uh, it was subjected to several biochemical assays in an attempt to determine the specimen's relationship blah 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 protein analysis dna uh blah blah, blah all that stuff showed that it was 
indistinguishable from North American pumas. So it's unusual morphology. It's very gracile, long-limbed um, form, which was previously described as something significant. Turned out to be just a weird, long-legged um, puma. Maybe, maybe like this animal had, you know, something wrong with it. Maybe it was malnourished, or I don't know. I've never really seen that discussed in the literature. But if you go back to what Shuka is saying in Mystery Cats of the World, now in the late 1980s, it wasn't just this break-in story about the Onza that's breaking. At the same time, people are also quite excited about these, on the cover of this book, John, that black cat is one yep. of the Kellis cats. Don't know if you know about these. Nope. I've written about them a couple of times, long, long time back on Touch Orgy. The Kellis cats are these peculiar black-furred, long-limbed, relatively large, Scottish, wild-living cats. And today, they are generally thought to be introgressive hybrids between Scottish wildcats and domestic cats. So basically, they ain't really that much. They're not anything particularly special. But in the... So they're hybrids between the two that are then backcrossed with either one or both of the parent species. But in the 80s, the... these animals were just being discovered this was a break-in story the kellis cat story was that was rather similar to what i just said about the onza it was like wow is this a new form of cat that we've missed before is it something newly evolving or is it you know some like you know old species that we know from the fossil record and we've missed before might seem extremely unlikely for the uk but these ideas were on the table and in um Shuka's Mystery Cats of the World, he's saying that the the Kellis cat and the Onza perhaps have enough similarities to imply that maybe there's some new previously unrecognised genetic tendency in cat species for them to throw out these weird long-limbed cursorial ecotypes, mm-hmm. which he rightly says that would be as big a deal, that would be as significant as uh, you know finding a new species. There's a, an article by my friend John Downs, who you know wrote a lot about cryptozoology, and John also brought the king cheetah into this as well, but that's a story for another time, I won't tell that now. Rightly, rightly or wrongly, John implied that the um, the king cheetah might also be evidence for this, like, you know, there's some crazy new thing happening in the world of felid evolution. But, yeah, We've already heard the end of the story. It wasn't to be. The the Onza turned out to be um, just an unusual puma. Uh, like I've said, like I said at the start of this discussion, the um, the the idea that the Onza is a name specifically used for a, a particular kind of formerly unrecognised cat, I don't think is correct. I think it's an amorphous term that's used interchangeably for various known cat species. It's not a coincidence that the jaguar's scientific name is Pantera onca, because the onca bit, he says without checking, I think is linked to this concept of the Onza. I hope that's... I hope that's <laughs> we can, we'll, we'll have to follow that up. But... Uh, I've been meaning to cover this story on Tetrabol's Orgy for years. I don't know if it's been covered in the blogosphere. Um, I'll do it sometime. And there are brilliant colour photographs of that 1986 um, Mexican Onza specimen that appear in quite a few... um, So, yeah, can you see this online? If you search for Onza, Onza, you get lots of pictures of um, some sort of weird bite. But if you search for Onza cat, you get a picture in the first few hits, which is of this specimen. That's it, yeah. Now, 
What I, you know, when you were tell, starting to tell this story, I mean, immediately the red flag is it looks a lot like a puma, mm. but it's got longer legs. Now, there's one thing that's really difficult to judge about cats. It's the length of their legs because of the floppy skin around their belly and just the way they hold themselves. The length of a cat's legs are really tricky to tell. It's a bit like, um, you know, the, the mon, is it Montauk monster and the raccoon and everyone's saying, no, it can't be a raccoon because its legs are too long. Well, <clears throat> yeah. And looking at this picture, it's not gracile. It's, look at its forelimbs. They're mm. meaty, like a puma. Mm. They're nothing mm. like a cheetah. And its mm. hind legs seem to be stretched out, much more uh, uh, straightened than the animal would generally hold it when it was moving around. So You see, it's exactly, it's femur's vertical yeah. in the... Yeah. So I don't even think it's a particularly unusually shaped puma. Mm. I think it's... It might be on the skinnier side. Certainly, its lack of belly and stuff is a bit looks a little odd, but not no. I don't think there's anything here that would suggest that this is anything other than a puma. Just looking at it, um, and therefore, I don't get what the excitement was about. Well, we'll go back, go back to 1986. <laughs> well, yeah, I get why people wanted it to be something exciting, yeah. but just looking at it, no, there's just yeah. Mm, no, sorry, people. Its, it's, its ears, its ears, quite pointy for a puma. Point, <laughs> especially, especially pointy ear. So, but if you look I'm, at lots of photos of pumas, they're actually quite variable, right? Especially depending yeah. when you catch them, how they're moving. They're very, quite variable in size. Sometimes they look quite gracile. Sometimes they look quite chunky. I, I think that they're one of the more just eyeballing, and they look like one of the more variable cats to me. So. Yeah. Uh, unsurprisingly, it's Carl Schuker has written a, uh, a long article uh, about this, which you can find online. Yeah. Um, I was also thinking of this photograph, which again I'll show for the benefit of John and no one else. That's from 1938, and is meant to show a couple of hunters with what's meant to be an onza. And you know that that cat. Okay, I would not say from that photo that that's a puma. Well, but it probably it probably is it probably is but I wouldn't say can you see look at this ear you see that giant ear that looks more like a lynx yeah but so, it's hard to tell what that yeah yeah, thing yeah. I'm is, not like right? I haven't ever I haven't ever said anything about it. I haven't yeah. gone on record and said anything but I'm saying if I was caught up in this hype if I was like wow there is this new kind of cat I would be inclined to look at some of these photos and think yes there is something interesting here and this seems to be well this this is this is the case repeatedly with a lot of these stories it's like two or three people start saying no it's for real we do have something interesting here and look we've got this photo and you know part of you's thinking yeah are you sure that's not just another puma or jaguar or whatever whereas another part of you is thinking okay wow wow they have got the data they have got something new it does match with this it does match with this um what that tells you about uh psychology and the power of groupthink and all those kinds of things is uh, is interesting but uh, uh yeah i certainly grew up in the 80s thinking that wow the onza is something new okay i wasn't like a you know a skeptical proper adult i was like a a teenager, even dumber than I am now, maybe. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. No, it's an interesting story, and I think, but it's sort of a like a lot of these things, a confluence of very weak evidence that people mm. add up to strong evidence. And mm. actually, when you go and examine any of the bits individually, then it's a bit like, well, 
Yeah, like there could be a cat people are describing, but it could also be just a generic term for cat. Yeah, this could be an unusual puma, but it doesn't look all that weird. So, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. But it ended in the right way in that you know, proper science was done on it by yeah. people who actually, you know, did it properly and knew what they were doing. And uh, Yeah. There you go. Um, I do think so the um, the other one you mentioned, uh, the Scottish one, you know, the idea that this is it is a newly evolving cat. If they do establish a population that looks like that and behaves in a different way, right? It is a newly evolving cat. It comes from hybridizing, whatever that means, um, domestic and wild populations. But that's how you get um, genetic variation and alleles and all the things that go into making a morphological evolution right <laughs> sure uh but you need to talk about more than like five or six or seven individuals <laughs> yeah, you, need <laughs> breeding pop- you need a breeding population of them yeah all right um right so jurassic world have we really got time you we're not going to do it any other time so just like a couple of minutes couple of minutes, couple an, hour, of minutes. an hour later okay 25 years of jurassic Park, jeez, twenty-five years. We're getting old, Darren. Old. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I'm getting younger. <laughs> You're getting younger. <laughs> um, yeah. So, what do you want to say about Jurassic Park? Twenty-five years in. Well, like uh, I kind of think that I don't want to just repeat everything I say in the Touchable Zoology articles. Because most, so, where do I even start? Uh, I don't know. Well, well, as someone who was 1993, I can't, I can't work it out. But I'm something, I was something like 18 or 19 or I don't know, 20 years old. I don't know. But um, I was, you know, caught up in the hype and like, uh, okay, I worked in a news agency at the time. I, my job was literally sorting through magazines and newspapers and stock control that kind of stuff and so i was seeing everything as it was you know the the amount of hype in the months running up to um uh june and july of 1993 when dress part was released i was you know uh uh, reading all of that stuff i'd already read michael Crichton's book a couple of times i was seeing all this stuff on tv there was and again i'm just I'm, i'm repeating myself it's all in the blog article. <laughs> but, but Darren, what about people that don't read the blog and just want to yeah, hear you speak? Yeah, just say it faster. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, so, you know, so, summarize yeah. a bit. So I was like, wow, this is going to be awesome. It's, it looks like they're doing the right thing as goes. They are going to bring new looks, sort of, you know, uh, your Bakerian, Greg Pauly-style dinosaurs to the big screen. But I also knew from uh, the images I've seen so far and from what's in Croyton's book, that so they're not going to portray dinosaurs the way I would personally like them to be portrayed. You would probably say the same uh, if you think of you know what you thought about dinosaurs at that time. For example, you know it's obvious they're going to go for like a, you know, a horizontal-bodied, fairly accurate Tyrannosaurus, but they're also going to have like um, you know unfeathered, scaly-skinned Dromaeosaurs, which they call Velociraptors. Of course, we know they're not Velociraptors. A boring thing you've heard a million times before. Mm. And um, there's some weird stuff in the book. I was like, oh, please don't, please don't have that in the, 
that in the, the film, like uh, the venomosity of the Dilophosaurus. Dilophosaurus is, is like full size, proper size in the book. It's meant to be like seven meters long, but it's meant to be venomous and to spit venom and stuff, which I thought was a bit stupid. And uh, when I first started seeing bits on TV, so this is well before the film came out, you know, they kept on showing the bits from the Tyrannosaur paddock. They would always show as a TV spot, you know, a little clip on the news or magazine shows on Saturday morning or whatever, they would always show the bit when the Tyrannosaurus steps out of the paddock and it, it goes in front from right to left of the uh, Jeep that Malcolm and Grant are in. And uh, uh, so you see it like illuminated in the headlights and stuff and Malcolm says, oh, gee, he's been right all the time, whatever he says. They would show that a million times. You know, I felt like I'd seen that loads of times before the movie. They would also show a couple of other clips like when Grant is finding that nest and uh, the life finds a way, you know, that kind of, kind of thing. So by the time I went to see the film on opening night, whenever that was, that was in July in the UK, not in June, unlike uh, North America. Um, yeah, seen some of it, quite, seen a few bits of it quite a few times and really quite liked it. Seen the film many times. I like it as a movie. I think it's a good film. I think it's got, it's got pretty likable characters. Um, you know, the humans are well played i never i never liked the fact that they just wanted to you know hunt down and kill those horrible dinosaurs but now i think as someone who was you know had a duty has a duty of care to children it's like yeah i think that's probably, <laughs> probably very reasonable to arm yourself and <laughs> stuff like that um yeah and i, I like the film as a, as a movie i like the dialogue i like the sort of spielbergian stuff the weird way he has this there's a particular name for this thing he does where you can actually have characters kind of saying things like people can people kind of not necessarily talking we don't talk in real life the way we do when we read from a script and it's very often obvious in acting that people are yes talking from a script because yes as i said uh there's this style of talking that's just not accurate whereas in real life you know people are lazy and they trail off and and sometimes they'll overlap other people in conversation yeah there's a thing there's a thing that's done really well in jaws where you sort of have someone like talking in the background and you, you kind of like half hear what they say you sort of hear one or two words and it's like oh, why did i not hear that probably because it's like real life that's literally how the real world works and you have there's some of that in jurassic park so i've seen jurassic park probably about like i don't know 300 times and that may be an exaggeration i don't know and it used to bug me the first several times when they're looking at the Brachiosaurus. You listen, listen to the the dialogue there. It's really hard to get the words. You have to listen to it repeatedly. So I, I read, this thing's not a sloth. Brachiosaurus, it's a 25-30. Brachiosaurus, 30. Uh, it's, I read this terrible old book on cold-bloodedness. Uh, uh, sort of, it's like the, the words are a mess. You've got three characters sort of overlapping each other, talking too quickly. But now I think, well, that is what it would really be like. If you, oh, my God, it's a dinosaur. Um Okay. Yeah. The, yeah. So some of the some of the little and I have uh, you know uh, over the over the years formerly on the dinosaur mailing list and more recently on Twitter and you know elsewhere on social media and including on this podcast. I think it's fun to point out you know all these little uh, mistakes or continuity errors of which there are many 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 in Jurassic Park. But I think now that first of all don't do that too much because then it just makes you seem like an unpleasant person. Because it's like, if I put that much effort into making a film, which I can't do, obviously, for budget and whatever, um, my films are really cheap. But um, 
Imagine if you put that much effort into it. It's like, shut up. You try and make it look like air blasts out the nose of a Tyrannosaurus. You make it look like a Tyrannosaurus is standing on top of a Jeep and crushing the children underneath. You try and smash it like a giant window and not have it go wrong on take 27. You know, I think mm. it's, it's sometimes very petty to point to those things. Uh, so, you know, I like, and, and also I think that this is ubiquitous and normal for any effort filmed basically anything filmed if you watch it enough times you'll see that the most <laughs> hilarious egregious errors because that's just you're not meant to watch these things a hundred times and no. keep your eyes keep watching the jacket keep watching the jacket the jacket's gone for one frame and then the jacket's back again it's like who cares who cares when you saw it in the cinema <laughs> were you staring at the jacket for that one frame no okay here for example i'm thinking of let's say han solo's de- disappearing reappearing uh, tunic in the I love you I know scene in the the, the um uh-huh. carbon freezing yeah. chamber but um I just think you watch enough of those things it, it, it doesn't it doesn't take anything away from the impact of the film on the time you're viewing it in the cinema and I'm pretty sure that films are made to be so that you enjoy them in the cinema not that you sit down a hundred times analyzing it pausing it on video well, yeah, I think that's changing a bit because of people like you who go and see what was it, bloody, I don't know, Soupy McSuperhero three times in the cinema and then will <laughs> probably watch it 600 times when they get home. I don't think you're pretty common. That's, so maybe they are starting to think about that stuff. He's talking about Infinity War, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, Jurassic Park was really interesting because it was, yeah, it's dinosaurs, which is obviously relevant to us. But uh, I think everyone's forgetting that it was the first major film where they did animals or monsters that looked real, Mm. right? We'd never had that before. Even Star Wars, where everything looks real, they're using stop motion for the, what's the runny thing on the ice planet, right? Tauntaun? Yeah. And it doesn't look real. I mean, it looks good. <laughs> Run. It looks good, but it doesn't look real. And um, the f- first time a substantial number of living creatures that weren't real went on television. Sorry, on film that looked real. And that's because of, you know, the computer graphics, but also a tremendous amount that, of work that went into the um, puppetry and the animatronics at Jurassic mm park because they had the had a pretty big budget for it um so yeah i think then, so, so that's it's sort of a breakthrough film in many ways and it's we talk <clears> about <throat> it all the time because it's a dinosaur film but um yeah it was remarkable for these things not just the, the dinosaur aspects think about it um and i remember a huge amount of the hype being uh, the computer graphics, you know. This is a film made with computer graphics. And in 1993, that was, wow, they can make films on computers now. You know, they can make special effects with computers. That's amazing. I remember being pretty interested in it because I was already interested in dinosaurs, obviously, similar to you, but I was I was, I was 12. Um. And I couldn't get any information. I don't know why. They weren't showing very much on television. I couldn't find anything. You didn't have the internet. My God, the world's changed, huh? I mean, Mm. now you can watch pretty much the whole film before it comes out because they 
well, and stuff that isn't even in the film because <laughs> because it's in the trailers and not in the actual film, right? Um, yeah, so I just I went into it really not knowing what to expect very much. Huh. I was wow, hoping I knew it was <clears throat> I knew it was going to be like dinosaurs and I could see that they'd got a lot of stuff right in mm. the, it looked like it was going to be sort of a new take the new take on dinosaurs dinosaur renaissance mm. dinosaur sort of but as you say I was I was quite disappointed in the monster monster film aspect of it yeah. in retrospect of course all this is completely forgivable I mean it's a major blockbuster what are you going to do I and mean, I think it was Good enough that they had a decent script, good actors, okay sci-fi. Dinosaurs weren't just portrayed as monsters. They also had a lot of the, um, you know, their sort of magnificent beasts sort of thing to it as well. I think, you know. And it was essential to the plot that dinosaurs were not what they were expecting before they made them, right? That they weren't really prepared for fast, dangerous dinosaurs. They were sort of expecting them to be big and sluggish and slow and hand easily handled, and instead they got out these terrifying, fast, intelligent cre- creatures, which is inte- which is integral to the plot of Jurassic Park. And uh, you know, I think it's a good it's a good plot. You know, being mm. a bit surprised <clears throat> by something you made and not really being prepared for it. Um. And interestingly, I've just I've been to see Jurassic World, thanks to friend of the show Sam Barnett. <clears throat> no thanks, Sam. It was his birthday, so I had to go. <laughs> no thanks. Jeez. Well, I didn't want to see just, it. I didn't want to see it before you. Before but you no, 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 no. But I wanted to just bring this back. This did okay. because I think they're being more very self conscious now about this sort of stuff. They did bring into Jurassic World two a lot more of the Magnificent Beasts sort of aspect to it. They were deliberately referencing Jurassic Park in that way, right? Mm. So they pulled back from the just crazy monster film vibe that Jurassic Park films since 3 have had a little bit. Um, sorry, so go ahead. What, do you, what else did you want to say? Well, before before you talk about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, I was going to say that you. So you just said that as a twelve-year-old, you didn't you didn't know what to expect before going into the cinema and seeing Jurassic Park. Mm. I felt completely the opposite. I was concerned on first going to see it on premiere night that I'd maybe seen basically <laughs> all the rest of it because. Uh, I had seen so much of it because I had gone to lots of trouble to to find those things. As in, when I say lots of trouble, I mean, I mean, I'd watched things on TV. There were, I don't know if they still have these things today because I don't really watch TV anymore. The the way TV works is now so different. But there were lots of like, like TV shows that were, today we're going to take you to the studio and we're going to talk to the special effects people and you know, it'd be like a sort of discussion program with people behind Jurassic Park. And they'd also show you clips from the film. And they'd also have those on, you know, you can you remember from younger times, they younger life, they used to be like weekend morning television things that were designed for kids, you know, designed for younger people. They would have like pop music videos. They would have maybe like the tiniest bit of current affairs and cooking. And they would also have like, you know, films that are coming out, promotions for, I don't know, plays or whatever. And they would, they would do things like talk about 
you know, films and you watched enough of those things. And I did. Plus, they also had it on the mainstream news, you know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock news in the evening. And there's a new film coming out about dinosaurs. And let's see how the special effects people in Hollywood made Tyrannosaurus Rex come to life. They would uh, they would keep showing the same clips again and again. So, you know, well before July. 1993 i had seen the, like i say i'd seen some of the t-rex paddock stuff uh definitely seen uh the gallimima stampede many times definitely seen some of the like velociraptor bits and uh yeah it's like what else is there in the movie that i'm not going to see and i mean, I, you know, I didn't that didn't ruin my um enjoyment of the film but i certainly felt i was very well versed in what it was what it was uh, going to be like, what, what, mm. even the storyline, even what the storyline was. They're going to, this is going to happen. Then we know that's going to happen. This is going to happen. And what you said about the special effects, I, I discuss all of this in the the next Tetrapod Zoology article. But the fact that if you, this awesome book, The Making of Jurassic Park by Shay and Duncan, is is really good on this. But um, Jurassic Park is like the seminal film of the time in terms of. As you as you said, um, showing everyone, showing studios and the public that we can now do this with CG, and also you've got this like dream world crossover between the people that those of us who watch modern films, you already you already like think these guys are awesome. You know, everyone knows about Phil Tippett. Phil Tippett did like yeah you know, the, the the basically all the stuff in The Empire Strikes Back that we've spoken about before. Things like Terminator. Oh, Sam Winston Studios, of course. You know, stuff like Terminator and the Alien franchise, um, and uh, Industrial Light and Magic. You know, which of course, if you know anything about Star Wars, you you know quite a lot about ILM already. Um, the fact that you and, and of course everyone you know everyone knows a lot about Spielberg and his movies and it's like all these people coming together even if you don't know what's going to be in the film it's like oh my god this is going to be a game changer and uh, obviously it, that is exactly what it what it was you know the I, I, again I say this on zoology but uh, Terminator Two which was you know still a young a new film at that point was 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 a, a game changer of that magnitude and i think that was 92 mm. and then it's like the people doing that all that discussion there was about how they made the t1000 and the effects there it's like you you were impressed with what they did there well now imagine what they're going to do with dinosaurs so it truly was a watershed and um yeah it's can't it can't be it's difficult to think of a film within recent years that has been that big a deal as goes affecting the shape of entertainment and i suppose avatar might be the next watershed but even then that basically only is a logical extension of what was developed in the early 90s yeah we need a new technology to come on board and i think that because i think we're already you know at peak cg there's not well and the way it's done, you know, showing us fantastic landscapes and creatures and spaceships and whatever. I, I don't see how it can... There's no technological change there that will drastically change the look of it. What will be interesting, and you do see this a little bit, is that being a, we're getting the beginnings of it, being able to synthesize people and actors, mm, mm. right? And so... You do wonder whether the future involves completely. Um, you don't actually hire actors. You hire voice actors and impressionists, and you just use your favourite faces and well, your t- mo-cap mannerisms or performance capture or motion capture. 
is obviously the way things are going to go, which because you can't do away with actors. I think everyone in the industry knows that while there might have been a time where they spoke about that, like, let's just not have access. Let's just have their likenesses. So like people don't want to go that way because the same as the same as there's a bit of a think of the films that have used the most amount of CG. So, for example, the Star Wars prequels uh, feel dirty for bringing them up. But, um, you know, how has it worked out where people have had unlimited free reign on a CG world? What have they done? It's, they've ended up with things that look like a uh, Call of Duty game or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think that's an artistic failure rather than technological failure, though. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of new technologies that would change the way f- films and t- things are done. I think one thing we have are seeing is that it's got cheap enough now that you can put it into television shows, right? And television shows, television shows, the budget's gone right up. And mm. so, um, you know, we get a significant amount of special effects, decent-looking special effects in television shows. In fact, I haven't noticed well, them looking worse than films. You've seen Dinosaurs in the Wild. I mean, that's, you know... Yep, yep. Even, even, even for attra- interactive exhibits, yep. we now have movie-grade CG that's yep. uh, pretty, that's pretty right. convincing. So, uh, yeah. Um. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about Jurassic World a little bit. Mm. I don't want to say too much about it because you haven't seen it yet. Um, I here's here's a here's a real big surprise. I didn't like the film. No. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. yeah no, I went in with such high hopes. High hopes. I went in. So, huh. what I've found about it, I you know, there's no point in summarising the plot because it's dumb. Um. It's just stupid. Uh, something, something, steal the animals, sell them, something, something. I don't know. But, like, what I found really difficult about this film was it was like a Transformers film in the pace and style, where it was just constant screaming, moving cameras. Uh, the whole thing was unbearable to watch. And literally nothing anyone said ever made any sense at all, right? There wasn't a conversation, a plot move, or anything that was like, yeah, that probably is what I'd say in that position, or what I'd do, or what the issue is that these people are discussing. You know how you have these conversations in films these days where someone asks some question or says something, and then someone says something that's unrelated, but they're both designed like they're having a conversation, but they're both designed to be sort of boost their character as this stereotypical character of what they are. I wish I could think of an example. But it was just utterly full of this. Conversations that weren't conversations. They were just little catchphrases that everyone was saying all the time. I thought it was worse than Jurassic World as a film. Ooh. Uh, it was one of the worst films I've had to sit through. As I say, like a Transformers <laughs> film, but worse. Um, wow. On the other hand, the dinosaur aspect of it was slightly better. Um, as I say, they brought a little bit back of, well, aren't these magnificent, beautiful animals? Which, okay, that's, you know, that's something I want to see in a Jurassic Park film. This is important, right? And they had a little bit of that. 
but it all felt a little bit too much like, yes, because this is like the original Jurassic Park, Park nudge, nudge, you know, even down to sort of very similar scenes, the referencing, as you call it, which you seem to like, which I just think, oh, God, stop it, stop it, stop <laughs> it. <laughs> so, but anyway, that was slightly positive. They had some, yeah, okay, animals in it. The the um, pachycephalosaur was kind of funny. Um, and the characters were less annoying and less stereotypical than they were in the first one. So, Overall, I found it a less annoying film in the things that I hate these sorts of films for. Mm-hmm. But I found it totally unwatchable and a, just a complete goddamn mess. Like a real hot mess of a film. That said, I was the only one of a group of 12 people that said they didn't like it. Now, I don't know what's going on in the world, but do most people like those... Tra- most people. This was not a group of 13-year-old boys... This was, you know, well, it was 40th birthday party. So people that sort of age going to a film where literally no plot move made sense. None of the dialogue made sense at all. Is Sam only 40 and, years old? Yeah. Oh, bastard. And <laughs> I would say a good ooh, 70 or 80% of the film is sort of running, screaming, shouting, screaming, dinos- <laughs> like just... Screaming guns, bloody crazy, you know, the sort of crazy crap that goes on in Transformer films where, hang on, which robot is it now? Flash, 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 flash. <laughs> and I, I just found it totally unwatchable. But other people don't, apparently. So I don't know what to say about that. Interesting. I feel like it could have been written by a robot. I really do. Like, this could have been written by an AI as they currently are. As crap as they are right now, this could have been written by one and it would have made as much sense. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, but I don't know what to make of that because, as I say, I actually found a lot of the bits uh, that I found annoying in the first one slightly less annoying in this one. Um, Mm. And I do like the return of the notion that dinosaurs are spectacular animals that are interesting even if they're not killing anything although there was few and far between um yes yeah, so to get like the, it was absolutely chock full of references because obviously this is what these directors realize that's what the audience wants um you know in is it it's in the Ju- original jurassic park isn't it where the, the at the end the jurassic park sign falls down over the tyrannosaurus as it's roaring yeah Yep. No kidding. They did that exact pose with that exact roar five times in the film. No. Yes. Not with the Tyrannosaurus, but with every single meat eater. So we had one where their stupid made up one did it. We had Mm. one where the Tyrannosaurus did it. We had one where the Velociraptor did it. And there were two others. I think uh, they had a Carnotaurus. Mm. And they had an Allosaurus but I'm not sure they Mm. did it. But we had five instances of that pose, that roar. So not only they reference it, referencing things, but they hit him again and again and again. (laughs) Now, this sounds like, uh, I'm wondering whether, um, what's his name, Colin Trevorrow, is taking, um, what's his name, who does the Transformer films? Michael Bay. Michael Bay. 
seriously as because I'm wondering whether they think there's some sort of theory to this incredible hot mess of action that they seem to think is so good, right? And there whether is a they're movement. deliberately hitting points and it's like, yeah, but you don't realize this happens at minute 10, this happens at minute 20, this happens at minute... And so we're punctuating the film to give it rhythm. I think they probably think they might be thinking something like this. But the you, result you is you, repulsive. You can find articles written by people in the movie industry where they say that they, you know, respect is the wrong word, but there is the, the Michael Bay style of movie working is a model that is good, which is not a measure of good that matches the I don't know what that one means. in general. So, yeah, I like I people get very um, interested in sort of theory and sophistication or something like this. Right. So just because there's a pattern to it, anyone can make up a pattern. Right. Is it a mm. good pattern? Is it a pattern people like? Is it a pattern that seems to have depth and resonance with people that aren't 13 year old boys? Well, you know, so so what? I do respect any movie director for getting anything done. I mean, just the organisation of these things is utterly incredible, right? I don't, I couldn't make a film. It'd be virtually just too much. Um, but I don't. I do think that yeah, there are these. I've read about Michael Bay's, you know, the theories about how it all works and stuff and what it references and things. But the result is a mess. And mm. it's gross. So, yeah, sure. so yeah. what? Yeah. Right? Yeah, I can come up with some very sophisticated theory about how something works. And is the result any good? No? Well, then, so what? But it, uh, maybe I did feel like maybe that's what Colin Trevorrow is starting to do. Maybe he's starting to take like a Michael Bay theory of filmmaking and is going to be, oh, God, making these incredibly <sighs> noisy films where he thinks he's making some sort of art. I don't know. Uh, there were lots and lots and lots of other references to Jurassic Park, the tapping claw on the floor and all these sorts of things. It was, it was, as I say, it was absolutely full of things. And maybe that's why a lot of it didn't make any sense, because they've got to hit a reference rather than, you know, move on with a plot that makes any sense or anything like that. Mm, so... I feel as if, you know, similar to what I said about Jurassic Park, while I haven't seen it, I feel like I know enough about it to, I could almost pretend that I've seen it. I probably know the story. I know the key points. I even know a lot of the references because people have, you know, meant, ha couldn't help but mention them or they're shown in stills, TV spots, clips, trailers. Yeah. Nosferatu, the obvious reference. I, I actually don't really like, again, without seeing it, I don't like a lot of the ideas that I believe are portrayed in the film that are a homage to scenes in jurassic park but they're now made dark and it's like like okay without giving it away to people who haven't seen it <laughs> he says having not having seen it the irony like the whole first act on the island the way that ends okay some yeah. of the stuff they show so i don't like that and i know that they're riffing on stuff that's a common trope in movies i'm talking about i don't want to say it because it's such a horrible idea i'm talking about animals on fire right so is is it just they get off the island in the first act? Yeah, yeah. And so the so what the so then it's so Jurassic Lost World the Lost World Jurassic Park is in San Diego where Tyrannosaurus runs amok, goes through the streets and eats people and stuff. It looks like they have that given that they showed Tyrannosaurus in a zoo roaring at a lion. So is that the second part of the film or the third part of the film? That is the very last scene, I believe. 
Well, there you go. So, sorry for spoiling the film for other people who haven't seen it. But um, look, you can't they, spoil it. The plot makes no sense. It's not <laughs> even. I would be. It'd be. It'd be. It's. It's too much praise to even call it a plot. So, is the Indoraptor like a baddie, like 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 the Indominus was in the previous Jurassic World? Um. Yeah, so this is the interesting thing about... Yes, it is. Yeah, it is a baddie. But I guess the interesting thing about this film is they definitely pulled away from the notion of any of these animals being bad. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. Um, They almost deliberately completely flipped it. So, yeah, the... The plot, if you uh-huh. want to call it that, is about the exploitation of these animals, not the... Humans bad, humans animals good. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit like that. Although, of course, animals do try to kill people all the time. Yeah. But then, spoiler, the, they also mostly kill the bad people. So. But I, that's another thing I found in this film, which I, I found in the first one as well. You know, someone just sort of, who you barely know, getting gratuitously killed in a, in a scene that you're meant to laugh at. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And I, there were a couple of notion, a couple of those bits in this film, which I would just thought it's weirdly gross. Uh, I don't know. There's something weird in the tone of the way these people get killed. What was it? The the nanny or something in the first one? She, yeah, the the she. Uh, yeah, I don't know what you call her, but yeah, she's she's looking after the the boys, and she gets horribly eaten by the. Uh... Picked up by the ter- pterosaur, dropped a couple of times, and then eaten by the mosasaur as it eats the pterosaur. So, do you know what a refrigerator death is? Uh, no. Although, it's an, when you remind me, I probably you've probably talked about it before. Yeah, anyway. it's it's based. Its name is based on the death of a a woman in a, a in a comic where. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how important the character is, but she is killed, and then she's like discovered, chopped up in bits in the refrigerator, and it's an unnecessarily grueling unpleasant death that just wasn't deserved of that character she didn't it doesn't feel right that she died that way and the the death of whatever she was called in jurassic world felt the same it's like i don't have anything against that woman i didn't like her i don't hate her i'm indifferent to her i don't why did she have to why did you have to show her dying in that that's a really dark horrible way which is sort of almost disturbing even as an adult um yeah but i think in jurassic park world it wasn't sort of so much the dark and disturbing way it was more the sort of <laughs> you know slapstick way i guess yeah right yeah which you haven't established yourself as this sort of dark humor film properly yet and you're showing us something which just seems gross and, that, and this one had some moments like that as well i don't like his tone very much in that respect anyway oh you know what else i've seen um before you shouldn't Moth- you give a jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, no, no, we'll, uh, Mark out of no, well, 10 or no. Guess, but we're going to do that when you see it in a few months. A few months. Yeah. What if I don't ever see it? I think I, I'm just not interested in it. Well, right, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, okay. I'll give, it, I'll, give it, I'll give it a star rating then. And it's one of those difficult ones because I actually respect some of the work that went into it, obviously, and I don't want to diminish all the people that go through the incredibly difficult process of making a film and they make good really nice things for films and but the whole thing's spoiled in the end because it's a shit film Mm -hmm. which is the case here so with all due respect to the animators and the costume people 
um, writers, you suck. Director, you suck. Acting. <laughs> uh, look, I don't think the acting was even that good. So, yeah, no. Well, they don't know how you meant to make good acting out of that script. No, I'm going to give it one star. It's really not. It's it's, it's a mess. It's a <laughs> one. It's, it's barely even a film. I don't. So even one know out of ten. Yeah. One out of five. One out of ten. <laughs> one out of ten. What about the lighting? What about the catering? I didn't like the lighting because it was all a bit like. Are they dinosaurs all shiny again? They're so shiny in Jurassic World. Yeah, they're shiny again. They're the same look basically. Yeah. So I've looked at the toys, and ironically, I quite like the Indoraptor toy. It's got, you know, just as just as a, a posable toy monster. It's pretty big. It's like, you know, like about I don't know, thirty centimeters long. It was thirty pounds. It was an interesting character because it wasn't scary, right? And I think they're really struggling to make scary things scarier than like how is Indominus Rex scarier than a Tyrannosaurus? It's just not really. So they kind of make it a bit uglier or something, but that doesn't work. Mm. It doesn't work. It just wasn't scary. And this one wasn't scary either. Um, I it's think black, though. It's the scariest of the colours. <laughs> racist. Mid- <laughs> Don't, please. It's the, it's the midnight dinosaur. Um, yeah, well, in this film, it wasn't any scarier than any of the other dinosaurs, so I don't know what they're trying to do there. I think okay. a scary dinosaur, if they want to do this again, hot tip, Colin, if you listen to the podcast. Yeah, which he does. Yeah. Um, it needs to <laughs> not look particularly scary, but do something really scary, right? What about it looks friendly, but it's really unpleasant? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the doe-eyed, the doe-eyed cuddly-saurus. Yeah. Uh, oh, oh you've chopped you in half. That's what, yeah. that's what we need. That's what, that's, uh, that'll be a scary dinosaur. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, one out of, one out of ten. I, I just, wow, <laughs> what a mess. Okay, yeah, I've seen, um, just to get you back now, I've seen um, Lost in Space. Aye. And speaking of this sort of, what are you doing now, why are you doing it, problem that a lot of these things have, this is, this is why I'm thinking of it, it's very similar. Is that really the best plan in this situation? It sounds like a really stupid plan to me. <laughs> and... Does water really freeze up when people are outside without even their hoods on and they're fine? And they, the stupid thing is, you could even have these scenes if they just bothered to give it even the slightest bit of, like, fudginess, right? This isn't water. Or this is water, but it's got something in it that makes it freeze really quickly, right? But they don't even bother. They're just like, it's almost like two fingers to the audience, just over and over and over and over again with these things. They want certain scenes, they want characters to say certain things, and then they just sort of write filler glue around it, which doesn't mm. work, which is mm. what I felt like this whole Jurassic World was. It was just scene after scene after scene. Very short scenes, because apparently we have a tension span of about a minute, and then they glued it all together with absolutely appalling dialogue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah but so did you like lost in space or do you think meh or it was bad we're still watching it i don't know i'm getting pretty cross with it though i'm not i think it's it's one of the worst ones for this aspect of writing that the sci-fi makes no sense 
and the what the characters do make no makes no yeah. sense. Yeah, I, I I I found it hard to recollect anything about it apart from the robot and things like the, the ice and one or two of the characters because it was just meh. It's just like there's like I can't really tell you what happens because nothing happens. So there isn't a there isn't a plan there. Okay, maybe you could say that's more like real life, but it's like no, there should be some kind of. It's not at all like real life. It's ridiculous. One thing that irritates me over and over and over again is that they just ignore what's happened up until then, and the characters just go on doing what they were going to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the the monster um, postasuchus type animals yep. attack the camp. They attack yep. the camp. The, the robot has to save them because apparently they've got no weapons. This was, yeah. For some reason, they've got no weapons at all. And they all just hide behind boxes or whatever instead of going into the ship, which might have been a sensible thing to do. But anyway, ignoring all that um, sort of on-the-spot illogical behavior, mm-hmm. the very next day, the very next day, the teenage daughter... And her love interest just go on a walk. Right? <laughs> have they got a gun? No. Do they even have a pointy stick? No. They just go on a walk. Off to a river. Yeah, you do realise there's a like a one ton predator out there that you've has tried to attack you before, attacked your <laughs> camp, and you're just gonna go on a walk. They don't even talk about the thing and what their plan is or anything. No one's going for any goddamn walks, I can tell you that. Any time you were leaving camp, it would be a big deal. Mm, mm. I just, like, and I don't know whether they expect us just to ignore that. Do they expect us not to, because f- what happens is I just build up, like, a a resentment towards the show. Right. Yeah, okay, you have to do this sometimes because you're lazy or whatever, but if you do it over and over and over again, it just feels like you're acting like I don't remember anything from the last 15 minutes of the show. Is this really an acceptable way to write? I don't... And I just get more and more resentful until I either stop watching it or rant about it on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's why we're here. Right. And that's what's given us the nearly 10 million listeners that we have. Right, let's stop. Yeah, that's enough of that. All right. Um, So... Are you on the internet? Yep. JohnConway.co. On Twitter, I'm at the John Conway. <clears throat> I'm also on Facebook, but I'm trying to use Facebook less these days. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't heard of anyone trying that particular innovative avant-garde strategy. Ooh, get you. <laughs> no, I know, but, uh, I'm, but I actually have started using it less. I'm not using it as much. I'm not posting all my updates there and stuff like this. So, Twitter is where to go to get everything I do. Yep. We, um, if you appreciate what we do, we are always looking for your kind and generous support. So, at patreon.com forward slash tetrapodcats, we are accruing valuable funds that will... Uh, in quotes, improve the quality or something. In mm-hmm, quote, mm-hmm. this uh, farty noises, Darren. No, wall to wall farty noises. Just how you want. <laughs> okay, I, 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 and on a related non-fart noises themed um, line of 
discussion. Um, I hate begging for money, but um, yeah, thank you to those who support me at patreon.com forward slash tetzoo. Uh, as I say, you know, uh, I think you know, there's a fair number of you that do support me, for which I appreciate it. But uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't reached the first of my goals yet. I do desperately need to leave Scientific American and become independent. But uh, um, I tweet. At, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I tweet at. The Falcon races into the starry vastness, followed by the four Imperial TIE Fighters and an Imperial Star Destroyer. Stars race by as flak bursts outside the Falcon's window. Han works furiously at some control panels, while giving various orders to Chewie. Horizontal boosters. Chewie barks. Alluvial dampers. Well, that's not it. Chewie barks. Bring me the hydro spanners. Chewie hurries over to the pit and places the tools on the edge. I don't know how we're going to get out of this one. Suddenly, a loud thump hits the side of the falcon, causing it to lurch radically. (laughs) Chewie barks. (laughs) The tools fall into the pit on top of Han. Ow! Chewie! More turbulence rocks the ship. That was no laser blast. Something hit us. Layer over Comlink. Han, get up here. Come on, Chewie. Han climbs out of the hold like a shot. Both he and Chewie run out of the hold and toward the cockpit. Out the front cockpit window, they see hundreds of asteroids racing by. Layer. Asteroids! <laughs> At Tetsu! <coughs> <laughs> One day there's just going to be a whole Star Wars film in there, isn't there? That's the plan. Yeah. All you have to do is go back through all the previous episodes and piece them together. Easy peasy, the whole thing. <laughs> okay. Should we stop there? Yeah, let's stop there. 